May it please the listeners. My name is Rich Schoenstein, and this is Law Brief, and we are going to talk today about punitive damage caps. It is a topic that has come up in the Alex Jones trial. It came up in the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial, and I wanted to talk about it. And I went and found somebody who knows a lot about this. That is Professor Heidi Lee Feldman from Georgetown University. Professor Feldman, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Let me set the stage here for what we're going to talk about. It came up last week because, as many of you probably know, there was a defamation trial against InfoWars host Alex Jones, stemming from really vile things he said about the Sandy Hook massacre almost 10 years ago. And the jury came at him hard, awarding the plaintiff there $4.1 million in compensatory damages and $45.2 million in punitive damages. And that was lauded in the press as a big win for the plaintiffs and a big loss for Alex Jones. But here's the problem. There is a statutory punitive damage cap in the great state of Texas, and that damage award will almost certainly be reduced drastically. In fact, The statute in Texas is real complicated, but it could reduce that punitive damage award as low as $750,000, which is the punitive damage cap for non-economic damage cases in Texas. Now, it might be a little higher, and you also have to take into account that there are two plaintiffs in this case in Texas, and there are two defendants, so maybe it's a multiple of that. But that award is not going to be anything near $45 million. Professor Feldman, have I said anything wrong so far? No, but you've laid down a lot of markers for things that have to be clarified. Excellent. Well, I'm going to get to you in a second because I want to, <laughs> I also want to throw at the audience the Johnny Depp Amber Heard case, which we've talked about on this podcast before, and I'm, I'm not going to go back into it <laughs> other than to say that the jury there awarded Johnny Depp $5 million in punitive damages, but that award was reduced to $350,000 because by statute in Virginia, where that trial happened, there is a $350,000 cap on punitive damages. What are these punitive damage caps? Where did they come from? Well, they exist in many states. I did a very unscientific review of state laws in the last couple of days. I came up with at least 15 and more than that, probably states that cap punitive damages. There are other states that bar punitive damages or only allow them in very limited cases. And I will tell you one thing that became clear is it's really different depending on what state you are. It's not consistent at all. So. Professor Feldman, that's a very long intro to get to you. But my first question is, where do these caps come from? If I may, let me just point out that one of the things you mentioned is that the Texas statute talks about the category of non-economic damages. And that's a very relative in, in the history of the common law, and particularly the common law of torts, that's a very new way of categorizing damages. So we have to understand that historically. The common law talks about damages for sort of out-of-pocket expenses, lost wages, medical expenses, 
funeral expenses in a wrongful death case, the damages for pain and suffering, and then this other category of punitive damages. The first two categories are often characterized as the categories that make the plaintiff whole. The punitive damage award is the category that historically was used both for purposes of sanctioning the defendant in sort of retributive terms, but even more importantly, it was meant to deter a defendant who particularly would be in a position to repeatedly do harm from continuing the conduct. Okay, where do punitive caps come from? So in the 1980s, there started to be a massive movement for something called tort reform. You can't see it on the audio, but Professor Feldman just made air quotes around the term <laughs> tort reform, right? Hey, hold on. Uh, let me see if I can say uh, something called tort reform. There we go. <laughs> I tried to do it verbally. Um, tort reform is it's a loaded way of characterizing an effort to limit in all sorts of ways the liability of people who injure other people. And it was spearheaded. It's a movement that was spearheaded by the American Medical Association, specifically in medical malpractice context, and was picked up on and imitated very quickly by the wider business community. And these are entities and their trade associations who are repeat injurers. And so they have a stake in investing in anything that lowers their cost of doing business. They went to state legislatures and they wanted to motivate a whole package of reforms, which they won in different ways in different states. So you mentioned that different states have different approaches to caps on punitive damages. Those are embedded in other sets of laws which vary from state to state. But the general point here was that they were trying to do two things, limit the amount of money that any of them would ever have to pay in tort suits. And I think also generally cast doubt on the whole idea of damages. And they went hard after punitive damages because two things. One, punitive damages are actually not awarded all that often or even sought all that much and weren't in before the even before this tort reform movement. So no one was particularly invested in protecting them. It wasn't the bread and butter of the plaintiff's bar, their business. But also, because punitive damages don't go, the point of them is not to make an injured person whole, but has these other purposes, which is retributive, deterrent. They are a bit of an anomaly in civil justice. And so they were an easy target. And a number of states passed caps. You mentioned the deterrent effect of punitive damages. That seems to me exactly what the jury in the Alex Jones case was trying to do. And it fits in exactly with what you're talking about, because the plaintiffs are the parents of a child who was horribly murdered in one of these school shootings that there are way too many of. And Alex Jones went on the radio or the Internet and said it didn't happen and they're fake and the kid was fake and everything was fake. And they didn't have a lot of classic out-of-pocket economic damages, which you talked about. They had pain and suffering, which I think is the bulk of the compensatory damages that were awarded. And the jury very clearly wanted to send a message. Stop it. Well, you know, we really have to take note of in Texas, where this was a, there was a huge battle over the 
passage of limits on damages throughout the 80s. And one of the provisions in the overall package of laws that cap punitive damages, Texas has a very clear rule that there has to be a bifurcated finding on damages. The jury has to look at compensatories and then at punitives. They have to look at compensatories first and then consider punitive damages. And they are not told about the cap on punitives. Now, as you pointed out at the beginning, the punitives in the statute, the cap is defined in terms of a multiple of the compensatories. A jury that sits down and says, in a case like this, where compared to the egregiousness of the defendant's conduct, the plaintiff's out-of-pocket losses are relatively low, the jury is led to believe by the procedure created in the statute that they'll be able to signal and make clear to the defendant the egregiousness problem at the punitive stage. But they're not told that the punitive stage is going to be ultimately is a situation where the legislature is attempting to cap any damage award they put in place and that the cap is based on their finding of compensatory damages in the first part. You have hit exactly on what troubles me the most about this Texas statute. And the Virginia statute has the same feature. The jury is not allowed to know there is a cap on punitive damages. So not only have you capped the punitive damages, but you've misled the jury. You have misled the jury about what their power is, what they can do, and what they need to do. And I think the effect is, and I'll go back to Johnny Depp and Amber Heard for a minute, If that jury had known there was a $350,000 cap on punitive damages, they would have given a higher compensatory damage number. There is no doubt in my mind that they would have affected the justice they wanted to in the compensatory damage category, but they thought they could do it in the punitive. So the jury doesn't know. The jury is misled. And would you agree it may have the effect of producing a total damage award that is much less than what the jury has in mind? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the same dynamic that you described in the Johnny Depp case, I think, applies here, that clearly a jury that finds $4.1 million in compensatories and $45.2 million in punitives doesn't intend the damage award to be under $10 million. Oh, you know, the total damage award. Right. So I think that figure as the most generous available amount now under the cap. But let me just emphasize here that this problem, the lack of transparency to the jury about caps and the effect it has on their deliberations really connects to a broader problem with legislative caps on damages, particularly punitive damages in tort cases which include obviously defamation cases, almost every state has in its state constitution, it specifies a right to jury trial. It's often phrased as an inviolate right to jury trial. Now, we're not going to have time to get into what the right to jury trial actually encompasses, but it doesn't mean we just go through the motions of having a jury sit there. It means that the jury gets to decide issues of fact, for sure. And damages are issues of fact. 
And if the jury is not told the law under which they're making those findings, I think there's a real question about whether you've compromised the right to jury trial. Right. But from the viewpoint of the plaintiff, the plaintiff has not received a fair adjudication of its claims by a jury, which is what it bargained for, because the jury is arbitrarily constrained. Now, it's interesting, of course, that you introduced the phrase arbitrarily constrained, because we need to be aware of the body of law that exists upholding the power of the legislature to cap punitive damages. And in fact, which at least suggests that there has to be quite a meaningful check on the amount of punitive damages ever awarded in a tort case. So I'm obviously talking about the line of cases that's begin in the U.S. Supreme Court with BMW v. Gore's. This was a case, uh, quickly, a case where big punitive damage award was awarded against BMW for basically concealing whether they were selling cars as new that were dinged and fixed up by them. And somebody who bought one of these cars sued, obviously, the compensatory damage relatively low, the value of an undinged car, but sought a huge punitive damage award and got a huge damage arguing that this was really unethical conduct by BMW. And in order to deter BMW from continuing this practice, they had to suffer a fairly large financial penalty. The Supreme Court looks at this case and says, okay, but punitive damage awards have to respect the guarantee of due process in the U.S. Constitution. And a punitive damage award that seems like it's so much bigger than the compensatory damage is questionable. The Supreme Court was not saying in that case, therefore, legislatures should cap punitive damages. This was really a bid to have judges use an authority that they've always had, which is to reduce damage awards, including punitive damage awards, and they have this power in state courts throughout the country, when they think that a portion of the award is based on passion or prejudice or is too conjectural. Basically, they think the jury hasn't made the finding on the basis of the evidence. They don't throw out the verdict, but they sometimes adjust the damages. It's done on a case-by-case basis. That practice is called remittitur, when a judge reduces the jury award. What makes remittitur not arbitrary compared to the damage caps is that the judge is looking at the particulars of the case. The damage caps just paint with a totally broad brush and say, regardless of what the evidence is in any particular case, here's a limit. Okay. And I agree with that. I think that there are checks on runaway juries and runaway damage awards built into the system with judges, because you can challenge any verdict if it's not fundamentally based on the evidence, including a damages award. So it does seem to me that there are constitutional limits on the size of a damage award. But I think you're arguing there may also be a constitutional problem with imposing a cap on a damage award. And in fact, I think at least a couple of states 
have had punitive damage caps struck down on the basis that they violated the state constitution, right? Absolutely. And sometimes this has been done under the right to jury trial provisions in state constitutions. State constitutions have other provisions that seem to make legislatively passed damage caps problematic. They go by different names. The open courts provision in some states, the caps have run afoul of state guarantees of equal protection and due process. Again, you know, there's variation. You can argue that constitutional concerns over the size of punitive damage awards lay on both sides of the argument about legislative caps, or not about legislative caps, but about limits on punitive damage awards and whether the, and whether and when they should be limited. The problem is that in most situations, I think that when the big tort reform movement came through and people were pushing for caps on punitive damages, they were not thinking about the right to jury trial, what a meaningful right to jury trial was, what other provisions of state constitutions involved. And so these caps set up litigation in state courts over the constitutionality of them. And they were struck down in many states. The Texas state legislature, going back to the Alex Jones situation, has attempted to insulate itself from any judicial scrutiny of its punitive damage caps by passing an amendment to the Constitution, which is proposed, it's voted on by the people of of Texas, which prohibits the court from questioning the constitutionality of any punitive damage awards. And so they try to put in the Constitution, right, a limit which says courts cannot consider whether what we do is unconstitutional. That's a kind of hinky move. I was not aware of that. Hinky is a nice word for it. <laughs> um, it's I, And just I'll just say that in the Alex Jones case, there's a lot of question about, given the way both the, I think the serious question about, given the way the ballot referendum was worded and what the ultimate amendment says, there's a mismatch between the two. And given um, some of the provisions in the amendment which seem not to have been respected by the damage cap statutes. I'm not sure whether that provision in the state constitution will actually even come into play in litigating that award, but it does give you a sense of how pitched the battle is, in some states at least, between the legislature's absolute determination to cap damages without any check on what they do, and the court's consistent efforts to look carefully at damage caps and see whether they respect the right to jury trial and related rights in state court. Oh, I think that Alex Jones case in Texas is nowhere close to over. The trials are pretty quick, relatively, but now we're getting into post-trial motions. There are going to be appeals. There's $45 million at stake. So these arguments about punitive damages and the restrictions and how do they apply and the constitutionality of those restrictions, that is going to get vetted in the Texas appellate court. And uh, it's going to take a while. But even before that, and I think this is interesting, we don't yet have a judgment from the Texas court. And whether and how the Texas court applies the damages cap is open to question because, I mean, both sides are going to make their arguments, I'd say, right from the get-go. 
both sides are going to argue about what the court should say Jones actually owes the plaintiffs on the basis of the jury verdict plus this damages cap. Because I think the damages cap is likely to be, as you were saying, ultimately challenged on appeal, the plaintiffs are certainly going to argue early on that the judge shouldn't even take it into account when writing the judgment doesn't really change your observation because whatever the judge does. That's right. It, right? Whoever, so whoever loses. Of, well, right, right. Whoever loses is going to challenge it. I just I, I guess what I wanted to emphasize is this. The fight over the size of the award, as it will be operationalized in the at the trial court level, is beginning right now. We don't even have to wait for appeals. That is very true. We can see it. And in these cases, sometimes it's fought at the trial level and then it's fought again at the appellate level and so on and so forth. Really happy you agreed to come on, Professor Feldman, and help us with this. It's an issue that it turns out, I think a lot of people don't know about these caps or where they come from, or certainly many of the issues that are involved. So I ask our guests to tell us a little bit about themselves, Professor Feldman. So can you uh, give us a sense of what you do? Yes. So I am a professor of law and philosophy at Georgetown University Law Center in Washington, D.C. I am trained as both a lawyer and a philosopher, although I've made my career in the law school world. And I specialize in the civil justice system and tort law in particular, as well as topics that are not so connected to our conversation today. And I think people are sometimes surprised that a torts professor also has a background in philosophy, but our conversation today really highlights the connection because there are deep issues of justice and the meaning of some basic provisions of American democracy at the constitutional level, state and federal, that arise in the context of tort law. And that's what drew me into being interested in the field. I was gripped by torts as a first-year law student many, many years ago. And torts concepts show up everywhere, even in the kind of business disputes I routinely handle. Fraud, tort, tort, tort. Right. People, do, I mean, it, I don't know about you. When I went to law school, I didn't really know what torts was. And uh, I thought it was a dessert. <laughs> and and then I realized that these concepts, they're very deep. They have deep roots in people's non-technical intuition outside of the domain of the law. Concepts like punishment or carelessness. These have deep roots in ordinary thought and they have been developed very fine-tuned ways by courts throughout Anglo-American jurisdictions. And that combination makes it super interesting and explains, I think, why in the cases we've been talking about, the public is so fascinated by tort cases. Because in one sense, the public can easily understand the core ideas at stake. What is harder for people to understand are all the legal wrinkles that arise, and I hope that we've made them somewhat clearer. I think we have, but we're going we're gonna to get one more chance because we wrap up these episodes with closing arguments, and I'm going to make one, and then I'm going to give you a chance to make your closing arguments. These are not competing. We're not closing against each other. These are summations. <laughs> summations, but I want to offer the following, which is about the Alex Jones case. 
You know, one of the disturbing things about this punitive damage cap, if it severely limits the damages that are ultimately awarded in Texas, is that Alex Jones could actually make a profit on this case. Because if you have followed the news, he is out and his company is out fundraising and selling products on the basis of this enormous award that's been leveled against him. They're trying to raise money and at the same time, they're going to argue to the court that the punitive damage award should be whacked down to $750,000. So you can imagine a scenario where he raises millions and millions of dollars through whatever products he sells and just abject fundraising and comes out ahead of the game. And I can't even tell you what I think of that. <laughs> the, the only light here is that he's got a trial coming up in Connecticut. And there's no cap on punitive damages in Connecticut. Professor Feldman, I turn it over to you. Well, what I think is fascinating about the broad issue here is that it does rivet the, the issue of caps on punitive damages, I think does rivet a lot of people's attention. Out of proportion to the frequency with which punitive damages are ever sought or awarded, you said uh, at the beginning of our discussion that there are narrow grounds in most states for getting punitive damages, and most tort cases don't even give rise to those. So the public perception of how often or even how large punitive damage awards generally is, is sort of out of whack with the coverage. But our discussion is still, I think, the media coverage, but our discussion, I think, is still quite important because many states have damage caps of all sorts not just regard, with regard to punitive damages, some cap damages in specific categories of cases, products liability cases, for instance, others cap damages for pain and suffering. So the issue of the way in which these legislative caps interfere with the premise that jury trials in tort suits in protect certain basic rights of injured people is one that people should be really aware of. Excellent point. Professor Heidi Lee Feldman, Georgetown University Law School, thank you so much for coming on. You have really classed up the place and analyzed this topic beautifully, although we didn't have as much time as we could probably spend on it. But great to meet you. Great to have you on. My pleasure. It was really delightful. All right, everybody, we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Law Brief. Now here's something lawyerly, a disclaimer. We are not your lawyers. We do not have an attorney-client relationship, and this podcast does not constitute legal advice. If you need legal advice, you should engage a lawyer of your own choosing. Tartar Krinsky & Drogan is a mid-size, full-service law firm located in New York with offices in New Jersey and Los Angeles. You can see more about us at tartarkrinsky.com. You can contact us at the email address podcast at tartarkrinsky.com. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at at Law Brief Podcast. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram under the handle at Lawful Riches. I know it's a little bit silly, but at least you don't have to spell Schoenstein. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate and review us. I'm Rich Schoenstein and we are adjourned.